Hey, good morning, RCC. How's everybody doing? Enjoying your holiday weekend? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, and maybe it's uh, hey, Chipley in Blountstown. By the way, great to have you all with us. I, I don't know what you people in Florida do on holiday weekends, because we all come to Florida. So I'm sure you're not that excited about just you know another day here. And I don't know. I don't know what y'all do. So I hope you figure out something fun to enjoy it. Um, hey, if you were not with us last week, by the way, uh, we are in a series we started last week called Questions. And what we're doing is we're talking about some of the questions that I think are common to all of us, and maybe there are some of the questions you're wrestling with now. Uh, but the bigger point of this series, and the thing that I don't want you to miss, is simply this. It is okay, it really is okay, to ask questions. It's okay to ask questions about God, about faith, you know, about Scripture, about, I don't know, and that doesn't make sense, and I don't understand that, and if God said this, and why does this happen? All of those questions, uh, they're perfectly fine to ask, and unfortunately, in a lot of church settings, and maybe you grew up in one, questions are discouraged, and what you end up with when you discourage people's questions is you end up with a bunch of people who have a very weak, fragile faith, and it's not your fault if you grew up in that environment. The, the reason you have a weak, fragile faith is because you've just been told, hey, your faith can't handle any questions, you know? You just need to believe. You don't have enough faith. That's your whole problem. And that is not true at all. Jesus invited people's questions. He welcomed them. He was never offended by the questions that people ask. And so I hope if you don't get anything else out of this, I hope you walk away from this going, all right, there's some questions that I have wrestled with that I'm going to ask. And this is a perfect church to do that. It is a safe place to ask your questions. And one of the things that's uh, starting up soon and at all the campuses, you guys have these in your seats. Uh, your summer short-term groups are starting up. And groups I have found to be an extraordinary place to ask some of those questions, to get to know some people, to have some of those open conversations. That's the whole point of group. And everybody is excited about that except your group leader who's like, I don't know the answer. And I, I get that, but they'll go talk to somebody who does. All right, you can figure it out. But we have, in my experience, group is just an extraordinary place to ask some of those questions. And I want to say this, and, and then we'll move on. Uh, you can look at the uh, brochure that they gave you, and you can see some of the short-term groups that are going. And the reason I point that out is because we guys in particular aren't, uh, we tend to be really slow to get in a group, and you know who you are. I have some friends who have told me, I mean, just flat out told me, I'm, I, you will never talk me into getting in a group, some, some of my buddies. And I'm like, challenge accepted. And so you know what I did? I started a group but I didn't call it a group, and they showed up. And then later on, I was like, I fooled you. You had no idea, did you? So anyway, I, I get all of us guys, we have a, we have a hard time doing this, but, but I point that out for uh, two reasons. One, um, there is a golf group in that brochure. I don't know, I, I don't know what all's going on there, but if you love golf, it sounds to me like you, know, you can figure out how to make that work. And secondly, the thing I would tell you is this. I have, in all seriousness, I have been a part of a group for uh, from the time I was a teenager on, for the majority uh, of my life, for all of my adult life, I have been in a group. And I will tell you, it is a lot like investing money. Um, this is what I found. This is the best way I know to explain it. People are like, I don't know. I don't get what you get out of group. And I tell them, listen, you're not, you don't ever go to a group and walk away and go, that changed my life tonight. You'd never do that. If you do, I'm, I, you might be a little scared about what happened. You know, it's like, it's probably a negative. You, you don't ever go to a group and walk away and go, that was amazing. But going, being a part of a group where you're connected with some other people, 
What it does is the same thing that investing does. You don't ever invest money and then the next day go, I'm rich. It doesn't work that way, does it? But continually investing over time results in exponential profit. You get that. You understand that. That's what compound interest is all about. Well, there is a compounding effect to being connected with people over the course of your life and exploring what it looks like you know, to apply what you're learning, what God's trying to teach you to your life, to ask the questions that you've got, to you know, dig into some of that. There is an exponential impact to all of that. And over time, I've done this long enough that I've realized, man, I just can't go without a group for that very reason. So that's my, that's my pitch, and you're like, you're a guest speaker. Why are you even pitching this? Because I negotiated a deal, and if 50% of you sign up for summer groups, I get a free meal at Paramore's. So no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, just because it's made that big of a difference in my life. I, I, it's worth you exploring, and your summer groups are a great time to do it because it's short-term. You know, if you get in a group with a bunch of weird people, you know, you know who I'm talking about. If you don't, it's you, actually. You're the weird person if you don't know any. Um, but no, no, you can get out quick, right? It's a perfect time to check it out. So on the back of that uh, brochure that you had in your seat, uh, there is, it tells you how you can sign up. The easiest thing to do is just go to RCC's app. You can sign up right there. You can check it out. I promise it's not a lifetime commitment. I mean, you just, if you don't like it, you just don't show up the next week. That's, that's a little pro tip for you. So it's that easy, but you ought to at least try it. You ought to at least give it a shot. If you got questions about it, you can stop by the gallery at any of the campuses and, and move on. All right, so circling all the way back around, the reason I, I brought that up is because you should be asking questions and exploring some of the stuff. And unfortunately, a lot of us, we just carry those around, don't we? We never ask them, we never get to the root of it. But your faith, your faith will be significantly stronger if you just ask questions, if you would just explore. And group is a great way, a great place to do that. Now, today we're gonna to talk about this second question that, um, well, let me give it to you and I'll see what your reaction is to it. I, I think it's a question that all of us have wondered at some point, but all of us think we know the answer to it. The question is simply this, does God love me? And here's the kicker, like I am. Does God love me like I am? Now, some of you, if you were here last week, you're like, when's he going to ask a question I don't know the answer to, you know? Because the obvious answer, you're in church. The obvious answer is, well, yes, yes, yes. But here, here's why I ask this question. There, there's a little more to it than this. If we were honest, I think we would all admit that there are times when we have a hard time loving ourselves. And so it is natural at points in our lives to assume I don't even know that I love me right now. I'm not sure how God could love me. Now, we have this general idea and understanding, well, yeah, God loves everybody. But I think the way a lot of us look at it is this. Like, there's this baseline of love that God has for everybody. It's universal. But we also feel like, based on how we live our lives, I think I could do some things that would make God love me a little more than the baseline. And I think I could do some things that would make God love me a little less than the baseline. The problem with that is... We're viewing love through the lens of how we approach love. And how we approach love and how God approaches love is very different. So here's what I want us to think about and chew on for the next few minutes. This simple idea that love is something we do, but love is who God is. Now this is, a, this is an important difference. What I mean by this is you and I, we choose every day whether we're going to be loving. We choose every day whether we're going to love. It is a choice for us, isn't it? And sometimes we do a great job of choosing to love, and sometimes we do not so great job of choosing to love. But it is always a choice for us. 
Love is not something that God sits up there and goes, let me decide if I'm going to love today or not. It's very different. Love is a choice we make, but love is who God is. Love is the very essence of his nature and of his character, which means it is impossible for God not to love. For God not to love would mean he had to go against everything in his character. Now, if you're going, I'm not sure I'll buy that, Matt. Well, track with me for a second, because... When Jesus was on this earth, one of his closest friends and one of his disciples was John. Uh, some of you may be familiar with John. John was probably the youngest of the 12 disciples, but he was also part of Jesus' inner circle. They were, you know, Jesus and John were best friends. To the point that, I love this, when you read John's account of Jesus' life, John never refers to himself as John. He actually refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. How cocky is that? It's like, hey, he liked all the rest of you guys, but he, he loved me. I was his favorite. This was, this was kind of John's feeling. I mean, John was so confident in the fact that Jesus loved him. He just always referred to himself that way. So John gets to be an old man, and we think he probably was the last living disciple out of the 12, okay? Most of the rest of them were martyred. John gets to be an old man. And can you imagine? I mean, this was true for them back, back then. It's hard for us to imagine what it would have been like to have gone and sat down and talked to somebody who spent three years 24-7 with Jesus. I mean, these people who'd begun to follow Jesus over the decades after his resurrection, this was, this was like gold. It was amazing. I get to sit down with John. I get to ask him what Jesus was like and, you know, what he said and what he did and tell me the stories, you know. And they begin to realize as John gets older, we're not going to have a lot more time with him to be able to learn all this stuff. And so apparently they start asking him a lot of questions. And so John writes the account of Jesus' life. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But he also writes three different letters to groups of Christians who apparently had sent him questions. You know, explain this to us, John, tell us this. So he writes a letter. And one of the questions that apparently he's getting asked a lot is, well, what was Jesus like? You know, what's God like? Can you tell us what you learned? And here is what John said. This sounds so simple. But here is what John said in one of his letters. He simply said this, God is love. What's God like, John? This is all I know to tell you. God is love. Now, this statement is a lot more powerful than it sounds, and I want to try to explain it to you. But in order to do that, I have to take you back to one of the darkest, most depressing times of your life. High school English class. Okay? You guys remember that? Some of you high schoolers are in English now. I'm real sorry. You'll, you'll survive it. Hang on. If you're an English teacher, my apologies. Uh, but anyway, okay, in high school English class, they taught you that every single sentence had a subject and a, okay, yeah, yeah, 10 of us here at Mariana knew that. That was great. A subject and a verb. Yeah, you other campuses, y'all are all over it. A subject and a verb. But here's, here's where it gets uh, tricky. There's not just one kind of verb. They also taught you, or should have taught you, that there are multiple kinds of verbs, okay? And one of the types of verbs is called a transitive verb, which is a state of being verb. Is is a verb, but it's not just any verb. It's a transitive verb, which means it denotes a state of being. Now, uh, basically, are you still with me? Is everybody with me? Okay, all right. Boy, yeah, if nothing else, you're going to walk out and be like, I got smarter today, so all right. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. Anytime you see a transitive verb in a sentence, you can replace the verb with the word equals, and it makes sense. Okay? That's what a transitive verb means. It's a state of being verb. 
So when John says God is love, what John's actually saying is, okay, I spent three years with him. Let me just tell you, God equals love. This is John's way of saying love is not something that God does. Love is who God is. It is the very essence of his nature and his character, which is great news for all of us, but it leads to the question that everybody's wondered at some point, well, what kind of love exactly does God show us? Is it the kind of, because there are different kinds of love, right? Is it the permissive kind of love where God's like, okay, everybody gets to do what they want to do and it's all okay? Is it tough love, you know? I'm going to straighten you out. I'm going to make sure you're on the straight and narrow. You know, what kind of love does God show us? This apparently, there was a lot of confusion about this in the first century. Because again, these people, they hadn't got to be with Jesus. So they're asking John, okay, well, describe for us exactly what God's love looks like. You know, what's it mean? You were with him, you tell us. And so in, I find this fascinating, in the account that John wrote of Jesus' life, where he records all the stories, you know, his experiences, as many as he can record before he dies so it can be passed on. In this account, John actually begins the account by addressing that very question, by helping us understand exactly who Jesus was and what kind of love he demonstrates to all of us. And here is what he wrote. He said this, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. Now, I got to pause here because this is really confusing. John, in, in the beginning of his account, actually refers to Jesus not as Jesus. He begins, refers to Jesus as the Word. And later he calls Jesus by the name Jesus. But early on, he just, it's, it's confusing. It's like, John, what are you doing? Why would you refer to Jesus as the Word? Nobody even knows what that means. So I want to, it's real confusing for us, but I want to take a stab at why I think he did this, okay? We have to go back to English one more time. My apologies, this will be it, all right? But you guys know from your English class, you know what a word is. A word, simply put, is a thought expressed. That's all a word is. So you have thoughts all the time. The problem is your thoughts are intangible and can't be seen. And so there is no way for me to know what you are thinking unless you put your thoughts into words. And the minute that you put your thoughts into words, now you've taken your intangible thoughts and you have made them a tangible thing that I can see and understand. Well, God, throughout the centuries, throughout history, God had a big problem. God's big problem was he was spirit. God is spirit. And because he's spirit, what does that mean? For centuries, for centuries, for centuries, people had been trying to understand what God was like, but they couldn't see him because a spirit is intangible. That's why if you look at not just Jewish history, because the Jews got all mixed up about this, but it was even worse when you looked at other people groups. When you look throughout ancient history up to the time of Jesus, there were so many weird, crazy, wild understandings or ideas about what God was like because nobody could wrap their hands around it. Nobody, God was intangible. He was a spirit. Nobody could fully get it. Nobody could fully understand. So what God did, and this is why I think John used this, God decided, all right, <laughs> I'm going to clear up the confusion once and for all. I'm just going to put on human skin. I'm going to go become one of them. I'm going to live among them. And I'm going to be tangible. And that's exactly why Jesus came. He came to communicate and to demonstrate for us exactly what God was like. And so when John begins by referring to Jesus as the word, I think he's trying to help all of his readers understand that. That, hey, just like a word is a thought expressed, Jesus was... God the Spirit expressed in human form for us. And it just blew John away when he understood this. So he says the word, it became flesh, made his dwelling among us. He's going, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's unreal. 
God decided, think about this. Can you imagine what it would take for you to believe this? He says, God decided to move into our neighborhood. God decided to camp out with us. The king left his palace and came and lived with the subjects. He's going, I know this is hard for you to believe, but he says, we, we have seen his glory. Now, when he uses the term we, he's not talking about like a, the general we that we sometimes do. You know, like we all, well, who's we? Well, it's really me, you know? He's not doing that. He's saying, no, no, no. We, as in me and James and Matthew and Peter and Andrew and Bart and Nate, oh, all of us, we spent three years with him. And John, if you read his account, you see he unpacks all of this. John's going, we saw miracles that we couldn't believe. We saw Jesus do things. I mean, we, we were with him so much, we got to the point where we were convinced he was God until he's arrested, he's tried, and he's crucified on a Roman cross. And at that point, John tells us in his account, we all stopped believing. At that moment, we all unfollowed. At that moment, moment we all decided we got fooled. He convinced us all he was somebody that he's really not because gods don't get crucified on Roman crosses. And for three days, I mean, they had no hope. For three days, they were in total despair. For three days, they were certain they had been fooled until John tells us in his account, early one morning, he's at a home. They're hiding out. I mean, they're scared somebody's going to find them after the crucifixion and do that to them. And some women knock on a door and say, the tomb is empty. And all of the guys in the house go, you're crazy. They go, no, 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 the tomb's empty, right? So you remember this? John and Peter, they're so curious. They're like, we're going to go figure this out for ourselves. So they take off running to the tomb. And I love this about John. He just mentions the fact haphazardly, oh, yeah, I beat Peter to the tomb, right? So they get, they get there, and they look, and it's empty. And they still don't know what to do until they come face to face with Jesus. And at that point, John says, okay, we're all in. We believed and we did not doubt again because when a man predicts his own death and resurrection and pulls it off, you can believe everything he says. And that's exactly why John ended up believing what John believed because he saw a man die on a cross and three days later, he saw him walking under his own power. And from that point forward, John said, I realized, I realized exactly who he was. And John goes, I recognized that I had just spent three years looking love in the eyes. I just watched love hang on a Roman cross. John says, I finally understood exactly what God's love looked like because I had lived with it. I'd lived with him. So he says, we, we've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father. And now John's trying to explain to all of us exactly what Jesus' love was like. And he uses this phrase, full of grace and truth. Not a balance of grace and truth. And this is really hard for us to grasp because all we've ever experienced is a balance of grace and truth. All we know and all that's natural for us is to have a balance of grace and truth. And what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes you slide down to the grace end of the spectrum and you give people another chance and another chance and another chance. And then other times you feel like you got to slide down to the truth end of the spectrum, you know, tell them like it is and hold them accountable. You know, all, that's all we've ever experienced. I'm just going to slide to one end here. Now I need to slide to the other end here and we're trying to balance it, you know. John goes, no, no, that's not what it was like. It's not what it's like. 
That's what you've experienced. Now think about it. If you grew up in a home with two parents, my guess is that you had a parent who tended to live on one end of the spectrum or the other, right? You had a parent that was more about grace and you had a parent that was more about truth. So anytime you screwed up and you had to confess, you went to the grace parent. And anytime your brother or sister screwed up and you want them to get in trouble, you went to the truth parent. That's the way that worked, didn't it? Just, we all did that. John's going, no, no, no. This is not the way God works. <laughs> you don't have to wonder what day you're catching him. And, oh, it's a grace day for him. Let me go to him today. Oh, no, it's a truth day now. I don't want to go. No, no. He says Jesus was full of grace and truth, both at the very same time. Then in other words, John's going, there was never a moment, there was never an action, an interaction with Jesus where he didn't show full grace and share full truth at the same moment, which we're not used to, which we've never seen before. So I was thinking, well, what's a good example of this that'll help you kind of, you know, wrap your head around it. And there's a lot of them in John's account of Jesus' life. But my favorite one is found in John 8. So John tells us, and he was with Jesus when all this happened. John tells us that they went to Jerusalem for this major religious Jewish festival. And the entire city of Jerusalem was packed. The, the temple was packed. The streets were packed. I mean, there, was, there were people from all over the country and all over that region, that part of the world, who were Jewish who came back for this festival. And so Jerusalem was just buzzing, right? And Jesus shows up with his disciples. And you could imagine all these people from the surrounding areas, they've never had a chance to meet Jesus, to hear Jesus. They've just heard of this rabbi who seems to be, you know, taking their country by storm. So when Jesus gets to the temple, a massive crowd gathers around him. and They want to hear him teach. And so he teaches all day long. And that goes really well with the crowd. It doesn't go really well with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders who controlled the temple. Uh, they already had issues with Jesus. They didn't like the, you know, his popularity. And so they really don't like it in the middle of this festival that they're right there. You know, he's right there in their temple. He's got this massive crowd. You know, he's stealing the spotlight. You know, he's stealing the show. So they decide we've got to put an end to this. Here's a great chance to do it. And so they called in what was called the temple guard. Now, this sounds a little odd, but there was actually a security force there in the temple in Jerusalem, and it was these guys. And so they call in the, the temple guard, and they say to him, we want you to go, and we want you to arrest Jesus. We're going to put an end to this right now. And so they, the temple guard leaves, and they go out, and the Pharisees wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and hours pass, hours and hours and hours. And finally, late that night, temple guard shows back up. Only problem is they don't have Jesus. And so these you know, religious leaders are like, we sent you out to get him. What happened? And I love this part of the story. Uh, John tells us that the temple guard looked back at them and they said, okay, well, we showed up planning to arrest him. There was a massive crowd though, so we couldn't just walk right up. So we had to kind of slowly work our way through the crowd, you know, to even get to him. And as we were working our way through the crowd, we were all listening to him teach. And by the time we got to the front, we thought, you know what? He actually may be the Messiah. He may be God. And we didn't want to take a chance on arresting God, so we just let it be. We let him go, you know? And the religious leaders are furious. They're furious. They're like, are you going to follow him too now? You know, so, so they send the temple guard away, and they spend all night trying to come up with a plan for how to put an end to Jesus, you know, solve this problem they've got. And they come up with one. So early the next morning... Jesus is back at the temple. He's walked up the southern steps, and there's a huge crowd again, and he started teaching again. And these religious leaders, 
they show up. And when they show up, some of you will remember the story. They show up with a woman who that night they had caught in the act of adultery, which raises a lot of questions that we're not even going to get into about how they knew. But anyway, they, they find her, they arrest her, they drag her. Can you imagine how humiliating this was? They drag her up the southern stairs in front of hundreds, probably thousands of people, and they throw her right in front of Jesus. And they look at Jesus and they say this, Teacher, this woman right here, she was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law, you know, the Jewish law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say, Jesus? And they're so excited because they've laid their trap. Now, here's the trap. You have to understand the first century context, but here's the trap. They know that if Jesus upholds the Jewish law and says, yep, stoner, the Romans, who are already on edge with such a huge crowd, the Romans will come in and immediately arrest Jesus because he has incited violence, and that's the last thing they need. They don't need anything that will cause an uprising. So that would take care of the problem. You know, uphold the Jewish law, you're going to get arrested by the Romans. Or, Jesus, if you look at us and say, no, 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 just give her a pass, you know? Just give her a pass. Let's just show some grace. If you do that, well... You're pushing aside the Jewish law. You're going to lose the respect of all these Jewish people who are here at the temple for this festival because of the Jewish law. So they won't want to follow you anyway. So they are so excited because either way, you choose truth, Jesus. Romans are going to get you. You choose grace. Jews will quit following you. This is perfect. It's perfect. Now, if you remember the story, Jesus, he was such a, so brilliant. Jesus looks back at them and he says, all right, well, the Jewish law says the stoner, so... Yes, we should stone her. I'll tell you what, though. How about whichever one of you has followed the Jewish law perfectly, you're the one who should throw the first stone. And then he bends down and he begins to write in the dirt. And John, I'm so frustrated by this, does not tell us what Jesus wrote. <laughs> so I made something up. Strictly my opinion, okay? Here's what I think happened. Here's what I think happened. I think Jesus said, all right, whoever, whichever one of you perfectly kept the law, you go ahead and throw the first stone because you're the only ones who are qualified, you know, to do that. And now I think he bent down and he began to write the names of these religious leaders in the dirt. Tommy, you were actually with that woman last night. There's your latest sin. Yeah, how else would they know? Bobby, you, you know... I think he just started making a list of their sins. And the reason I think that, and it may not be true, but the reason I think that is because John tells us that the religious leaders all began to walk away slowly, but the oldest ones walked away first to the youngest ones. And I, I think the reason they did that is because the, the oldest ones quickly realized, oh no, we don't want him to list all of our sins. We've got a long, you know, a long history there. And the youngest ones, it just took them a while to realize. And then they're like, okay, okay, no, we don't want in on that either. And so everybody... All these religious leaders who'd accuse the woman walk away. And then Jesus looks at her. This is so brilliant. Jesus looks at her and says, okay, did none of them condemn you? And they say, no. She says, none of them, Lord. And then I think she kind of looked at him like, none of them yet. Because you are the only one standing here who actually qualifies to be able to throw a stone at me. And Jesus looks back at her and says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Oh, wait a minute, Jesus, which is it? Is it I'm not going to condemn you, I'm giving you grace? Or is it 
Leave your life of sin, I'm giving you truth. And Jesus says, it's both. It's both. Because they are not mutually exclusive. They're actually mutually dependent. Imagine, imagine a world where there was grace but no truth. Well, you wouldn't even need the grace, would you? Because you wouldn't know that you fell short of anything and were getting something you didn't deserve. But imagine a world where there was truth and no grace. None of us could live under the weight of that, could we? Fortunately, when Jesus showed up, he said, we're not picking between the two. I'm not going to slide over here sometimes and make a point and try to make you feel bad about what you've done and just tell you to straighten up your life and give you tough love. And then other times I'm not going to slide over here and give you another chance and tell you it's all fine. Do whatever you want. You know, you do you, boo-boo. It's all good. It's going, no, no, I'm not sliding to either end of that. I'm always going to be full of grace and full of truth with you at the very same time. So let me circle back to our question. Does God love me like I am? Well, obviously the answer to that is yes, but it's yes and. Of course God loves you like you are. And he doesn't want you and he doesn't want me to stay the way we are. Because there are some habits and there are some behaviors, there's some sins in each of our lives that they're not leading us in a direction that's positive. They're not leading us in a direction that's healthy. They're things in the long run are going to create a lot of pain and a lot of heartache. They're things in the long run that will rob us of our peace with God, peace with others, peace with ourselves. And you know what love requires of Jesus? Love requires of Jesus to go, I'm going to point those out. And I'm going to offer you grace for where you've fallen short. I'm going to show you a better way. And I'm going to forgive you when you fail. That's what it looks like to be full of grace and truth at the very same time. Now, here's the thing, and we'll wrap up. Here's the thing. All of us have a choice of what we're going to do with that. That when we encounter Jesus full of grace and truth towards us, we can resist it or we can cooperate with him. One is going to lead to some pain. One is going to lead towards us becoming more like the people God created us to be. It's fascinating to me in that story that you had two different types of people. You had this woman caught in adultery who's looking into the eyes of the only perfect human being who's ever lived. The only one who had a right to condemn her. But she was willing to hear the truth, to accept the truth, and to believe in the grace that was being offered to her. Meanwhile, you got these religious leaders who are supposed to be experts, who when they, think about this, when they were confronted with the truth from Jesus, they were also standing right in front of the grace they needed. But they just walked away. Listen, some of you, some of us, God's been bringing truth in front of us along with grace. But instead of embracing the grace and following the truth, we've just been walking away. And that never leads to a better life. So you get to choose. I mean, you get to choose whether or not you're going to follow Jesus. But for those of us who are followers, once we decide to follow, think about we don't really get a choice. And whether we follow or not follow the direction of our king, of our leader. And so if you have found your heavenly father, 
nudging at you, confronting you, you know, God tapping on your heart going, whoa, 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 here's some truth that you need. You've got to decide what you're going to do with that. But John would tell you, you're standing there in front of love, in front of one who is full of grace and truth towards you. And if you want to be able to love that way, you've got to embrace the love that he shows you. He loves you just the way you are. And if you will cooperate with him, he will help you become who he created you to be. Let me pray for us. Father, this is a lot easier for us to talk about than it is to live out because we really don't like being confronted with the truth. A lot of times we just prefer grace by itself. But would you help us to understand that um, when you bring us face to face with truth, you do it out of love. It's the most loving thing you can do for us. So thank you for being willing to do that. And thank you for bringing us truth and grace, a fullness of both at the very same time. Help us to cooperate with whatever you're wanting to do in our hearts and in our lives. Help us to be wise enough not to be like those religious leaders and to turn and walk away from the very grace that we need. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you guys for being with us. Don't forget to sign up for a group. We'll see y'all next week.